at One Day University. We feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly Scholar Newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com. show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded and is based on Elizabeth Cady Stanton, writer, suffragist, women's rights activist, and Abolinist, one of many radio shows which will be aired. The information is taken from wikipedia.org Elizabeth Cady Stanton. After the Civil War, Stanton and Anthony became alarmed at reports that the proposed 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which would provide citizenship for African Americans would also for the first time introduce the word male into the Constitution. Stanton said, if that word male be inserted, it will take us a century at least to get it out. Organizing opposition to this development required preparation because the women's movement had become largely inactive during the Civil War. In January 1866, Stanton and Anthony sent out petitions calling for a constitutional amendment providing for women's suffrage with Stanton's name at the top of the list of signatures. Stanton and Anthony organized the 11th National Women's Rights Convention in May 1866, the first since the Civil War began. The convention voted to transform itself into the American Equal Rights Association, AERA, whose purpose was to campaign for the equal rights of all citizens, regardless of race or sex, especially the right of suffrage. Stanton was offered the post of president, but declined in a favor of Lucretia Mott. Other officers included Stanton as first vice president Anthony as a correspondence secretary, Frederick Douglass as a vice president, and Lucy Stone as a member of the executive committee. Stanton provided hospitality for some of the attendants at this convention. Sojourner Truth, an abolitionist and women's rights activist who had formerly been enslaved, stayed at Stanton's house, as of course did Anthony. Leading abolitionists opposed the AERA's drive for universal suffrage. Horace Greeley, a prominent newspaper editor, told Anthony and Stanton, this is a critical period for the Republican Party and the life of our nation. I conjure you to remember that this is the Negro's hour. Abolitionist leaders Wendell Phillips and Theodore Tilton arranged a meeting with Stanton and Anthony, trying to convince them that the time had not yet come for women's suffrage, that they should campaign for voting rights for black men only, not for all African Americans and all women. 
the two women rejected this guidance and continued to work for universal suffrage. In 1866, Stanton declared herself a candidate for Congress, the first woman to do so. She said that, although she could not vote, there was nothing in the Constitution to prevent her from running for Congress. Running as an independent against both the Democrat and Republican candidates, she received only 24 votes. Her campaign was noted by newspapers as far away as New Orleans. In 1867, the AERA campaigned in Kansas for a referenda that would enfranchise both African Americans and women. Wendell Phillips, who opposed mixing those two causes, blocked the funding that the AERA had expected for their campaign. By the end of summer, the AERA campaign had almost collapsed and its finances were exhausted. Anthony and Stanton created a storm of controversy by accepting help during the last days of the campaign from George Francis Train, a wealthy businessman who supported women's rights. Train antagonized many activists activists by attacking the Republican Party and openly disparaging the integrity and intelligence of African Americans. There is reason to believe that Stanton and Anthony hoped to draw the volatile train away from his cruder forms of racism and that he had actually begun to do so. In any case, Stanton said she would accept support from the devil himself if he supported women's suffrage. After the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868, a sharp dispute erupted within the AERA over the proposed 15th Amendment to, to the United States Constitution, which would prohibit the denial of suffrage because of race. Stanton and Anthony opposed the amendment, which would have the effect of enfranchising black men, insisting that all women and all African-Americans should be enfranchised at the same time. Stanton argued in the pages of the revolution that by effectively enfranchising all men while excluding all women, the amendment would create an aristocracy of sex, giving constitutional authority to the idea that men were superior to women. Lucy Stone, who was emerging as a leader of those who were opposed to Stanton and Anthony, argued that suffrage for women would be more beneficial to the country than suffrage for black men, but supported the amendment saying, I will be thankful in my soul if anybody can get out of the terrible pit. During the debate over the 15th Amendment, Stanton wrote articles for the revolution with language that was elitist and racially condescending. She believed that a long process of education would be needed before many of the former slaves and immigrant workers would be able to participate meaningfully as voters. Stanton wrote, American women of wealth, education, virtue and refinement, if you do not wish the lower orders of Chinese, Africans, Germans and Irish with their low ideas of womanhood to make laws for you and your daughters Demand that women too shall be represented in government. In another article, Stanton objected to laws being made for women by Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Yong Tong, who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic. She also used the term Sambo on other occasions, drawing a rebuke from her old friend Frederick Douglass. Douglass strongly supported women's suffrage but said that suffrage for African-Americans was a more urgent issue, literally a matter of life and death. He said that white women already exerted a positive influence on government through the voting power of their husbands, fathers and brothers, and that it does not seem generous for Anthony and Stanton to insist that black men should not achieve suffrage unless women achieved it at the same time. So Journal Truth, on the other hand, supported Stanton's position saying, if colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see the colored men will be masters over the women and it will be just as bad as it was before. 
Early in 1869, Stanton called for a 16th Amendment that would provide suffrage for women, saying, The male element is a destructive force, stern, selfish, aggrandizing, loving war, violence, conquest, acquisition. In the dethronement of women, we have let loose the elements of violence and ruin that she only has the power to curb. The AERA increasingly divided into two wings, each advocating universal suffrage, but with different approaches. One wing, whose leading figure was Lucy Stone, was willing for black men to achieve suffrage first and wanted to, main close, wanted to maintain close ties with the Republican Party and the abolitionist movement. The other, whose leading figures were Stanton and Anthony, insisted that all women and all African Americans should be enfranchised at the same time and work towards a women's movement that would no longer be tied to the Republican Party or be financially dependent on abolitionists. The AERA effectively dissolved after an acrimonious meeting in May 1869, and two competing women's suffrage organizations were created in its aftermath. In the words of one of Stanton's biographers, one consequence of the split for Stanton was that old friends became either enemies, like Lucy Stone or Warry Associates, as in the case of Frederick Douglass. In 1868, Anthony and Stanton began publishing a 16-page weekly newspaper called The Revolution in New York City. Stanton was co-editor along with Parker Pillsbury, an experienced editor who was an abolitionist and a supporter of women's rights. Anthony, the owner, managed the business aspects of the paper. Initial funding was provided by George Francis Train, the controversial businessman who supported women's rights but who alienated many activists with his political and racial views. The newspaper focused primarily on women's rights, especially suffrage for women, but it also covered topics such as politics, the labor movement, and finance. One of its stated goals was, was to provide a forum in which women could exchange opinions on key issues. Its motto, its motto was, men, their rights, and nothing more, women, their rights, and nothing less. Sisters Harriet Beecher Stowe and Isabella Beecher Hooker offered to provide funding for the newspaper if its name was changed to something less inflammatory, but Stanton declined the offer strongly favoring its existing name. Their goal was to grow the revolution into a daily paper with its own printing press, all owned and operated by women. The funding that Train had arranged for the newspaper, however, was less than expected. Moreover, Train sailed for England after the revolution published its first issue and was soon jailed for supporting Irish independence. Train's financial support eventually disappeared entirely. At One Day University, we feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly scholar newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com. After 29 months, mounting debts forced the transfer of the paper to a wealthy women's rights activist who gave it a less radical tone. Despite the relatively short time it was in their hands, the revolution gave Stanton and Anthony a means for expressing their views during the developing split within the women's movement. It also helped them promote their wing of the movement which eventually became a separate organization. Stanton refused to take responsibility for the $10,000 debt the newspaper had accumulated, saying she had children to support. Anthony, who had less money than Stanton, took responsibility for the debt, repaying it over a six-year period through paid speaking tours. In May 1869, 
two days after the final AERA convention, Stanton, Anthony and others formed the National Women's Suffrage Association, NWSA, with Stanton as president. Six months later, Lucy Stone, Julia Ward Howe and others formed the rival American Women's Suffrage Association, AWSA, which was larger and better funded. The immediate cause for the split in the women's suffrage movement was the proposed 15th Amendment, but the two organizations had other differences as well. The NWSA was politically independent, while the AWSA aimed for close ties with the Republican Party, hoping that ratification of the 15th Amendment would lead to Republican support for women's suffrage. The NWSA focused primarily on winning suffrage at the national level, while the AWSA pursued a state-by-state -state strategy. The NWSA initially worked on a wider range of women's issue, issues than the AWSA, including divorce reform and equal pay for women. As a new organization was being formed, Stanton proposed to limit its membership to women, but her proposal was not accepted. In practice, however, the overwhelming majority of its members and officers were women. Stanton disliked many aspects of organizational work because it interfered with her ability to study, think and write. She begged Anthony, without success, to arrange the NWSA's first convention so that she herself would not need to attend. For the rest of her life, Stanton attended conventions only reluctantly, if at all wanting to maintain the freedom to express her opinions without worrying about who in the organization might be offended. Of the 15 NWSA meetings between 1870 and 1879, Stanton presided at four and was present at only one other, leaving Anthony effectively in charge of the organization. In 1869, Frances and Virginia Minor, husband and wife suffragists from Missouri, developed a strategy based on the idea that the United States Constitution implicitly enfranchised women. It relied heavily on the 14th Amendment, which says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. In 1871, the NWSA officially adopted what had become known as the New Departure Strategy, encouraging women to attempt to vote and to file lawsuits if denied that right. Soon, hundreds of women tried to vote in dozens of localities. Susan B. Anthony actually succeeded in voting in 1872, for which she was arrested and found guilty in a wildly publicized trial. In 1880, Stanton also tried to vote. When the election officials refused to let her place her ballot in the box, she threw it at them. When the Supreme Court ruled in 1875 in Minor v. Hapazet that the Constitution of the United States does not confer the right of suffrage upon anyone, the NWSA decided to pursue the far more difficult strategy of campaigning for a constitutional amendment that would guarantee voting rights for women. In 1878, Stanton and Anthony convicted Senator Aaron, Aaron A. Sargent to introduce into Congress a women's suffrage amendment that, more than 40 years later, would be ratified as the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Its text is identical to that of the 15th Amendment, except that it prohibits the denial of suffrage because of sex rather than race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Stanton traveled with her daughter Harriet to Europe in May 1882 and did not return for a year and a half. Already a public figure of some prominence in Europe, she gave several speeches there and wrote reports for American newspapers. She visited her son Theodore in France, 
where she met her first grandchild and travelled to England for Harriet's marriage to an Englishman. After Anthony joined her in England in March 1883, they travelled together to meet with leaders of European women's movements, laying the groundwork for an international women's organisation. Stanton and Anthony returned to the United States together in November 1883, hosted by the NWSA, delegates from 53 women's organizations in nine countries met in Washington in 1888 to form the organization that Stanton and Anthony had been working towards, the International Council of Women, ICW, which is still active. Stanton traveled again to Europe in October 1886, visiting her children in France and England. She returned to the United States in March 1888, barely in time to deliver a major speech at the founding meeting of the ICW. When Anthony discovered that Stanton had not yet written her speech, she insisted that Stanton stay in her hotel room until she had written it, and she placed a younger colleague outside her door to make sure she did so. Stanton later teased Anthony, saying, Well, as all women are supposed to be under the thumb of some man, I prefer a tyrant of my own sex, so I shall not deny the patent fact of my subjection. The convention succeeded in bringing increased publicity and respectability to the women's movement, especially when President Grover Cleveland honoured the delegates by inviting them to reception at the White House. Despite her record of racially insensitive remarks and occasionally appeals to the racial prejudices of white people, Stanton applauded the marriage in 1884 of her friend Frederick Douglass to Helen Pitts, a white woman. A marriage that enraged racists. Stanton wrote Douglass a warm letter of congratulations to which Douglas responded that he had been sure that she would be happy for him. When Anthony realized that Stanton was planning to publish her letter, she convinced her not to do so, wanting to avoid associating women's suffrage with an unrelated and diversive issue. In 1876, Anthony moved into Stanton's house in New Jersey to begin working with Stanton on the history of women's suffrage. She brought with her several trunks and boxes of letters, newspaper clippings and other documents. Originally envisioned as a modest publication that could be produced quickly, the history evolved into a six-volume work of more than 5,700 pages written over a period of 41 years. The first three volumes, which cover the movement up to 1885, were produced by Stanton Anthony and Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Anthony handled the production details and the correspondence with contributors. Stanton wrote most of the first three volumes with Gage writing three chapters of the first volume and Stanton writing the rest. Gage was forced to abandon the project afterwards because of the illness of her husband. After Stanton's death, Anthony published Volume 4 with the help of Ida Husted Harper. After Anthony's death, Harper completed the last two volumes which brought the history up to 1920. Stanton and Anthony encouraged their rival Lucy Stone to assist with the work or at least to send material that could be used by someone else to write the history of a wing of the movement, but she refused to cooperate in any way. Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, who had returned from Europe to assist, with the to assist with the editing, insisted that the history would not be taken seriously if Stone and AWSA were not included. She herself wrote a 120-page chapter on Stone and AWSA, which appears in Volume 2. The history of women's suffrage preserves an enormous amount of material that might have been lost forever. Written by leaders of one wing of the divided women's movement, it does not, however, give a balanced view of events where their rivals are concerned. It overstates the role of Stanton and Anthony, and it understates or ignores the roles of Stone and other activists 
who did not fit into the historical narrative they had developed because it was for years the main source of documentation about the suffrage movement historians have had to uncover other sources to provide a more balanced view Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group educational resources to help reach your goals hello listeners if you're enjoying the new heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization please visit www.newheightseducation.org and while you're there check out our online store back to the new height show on education my name is barbara bullen and i'm the radio host for this show this show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights the continuation of the first segment of the show on elizabeth Cady stanton will continue At One Day University, we feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly Scholar Newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com. New on Curiosity Stream. Have researchers figured out a mathematical formula for success? A clearer understanding of how success happens could lead us to change the rules. Gain a new perspective on getting ahead. It's science of success. And the U.S. won the space race, but not without help from the Nazis. They were just years ahead of us. Meet NASA's rocket scientists of the Third Reich on the moon landing and the Nazis. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Stanton worked as a lecturer for the New York Bureau of the Red Path Lyceum from late 1869 until 1879. This organization was part of the Lyceum movement, which arranged for speakers and entertainers to tour the country, often visiting small communities where educational opportunities and theaters were scarce. For 10 years, Stanton traveled eight months of the year on the lecture circuit, usually delivering one lecture per day, two on Sundays. She also arranged smaller meetings with local women who were interested in women's rights. Traveling was sometimes difficult. One year, when deep snow closed the railroads, Stanton hired a sleigh and kept going, bundled in furs to protect against freezing weather. During 1871, she and Anthony traveled together for three months through several western states, eventually arriving in California. Her most popular lecture, Our Girls, urged young women to be independent and to seek self-fulfillment. In The Antagonism of Sex, she addressed the question of women's rights with a special fervor. Other popular lectures were Our Boys, Coeducation, marriage and divorce, and the subjugation of women. On Sundays, she would often speak on famous women in the Bible and the Bible and women's rights. Her earnings were impressive. During her first three months on the road, Stanton reported she cleared $2,000 above all expenses, besides stirring women generally up to rebellion. Accounting for inflation, that would be about $53,000, $600 in today's dollars. Because her husband's income had always been erratic and he had invested it badly, the money she earned was welcome. 
especially with most of their children either in college or soon to begin. After 15 years in Seneca Falls, Stanton moved to New York City in 1862 when her husband secured the position of deputy collector for the Port of New York. Their son, Neil, who worked for Henry as his clerk, was caught taking bribes, causing both father and son to lose their jobs. Henry worked intermittently to afterwards as a journalist and a lawyer. When her father died in 1859, Stanton received an inheritance worth an estimated $50,000 or about $1,400,000 in today's dollars. In 1868, she bought a substantial country house near Tenafly, New Jersey, an hour's ride by train from New York City. The Stanton House in Tenafly is now a National Historic Landmark. Henry remained in the city in a rented apartment. Aside from visits, she and Henry afterwards mostly lived apart. Six of the seven Stanton children graduated from college. Colleges were closed to women when Stanton sought higher education, but both of her daughters were educated at Vassar College. Because graduate studies were not yet available to women in the United States, Harriet enrolled in a master's program in France, which she abandoned after she became engaged to be married. Harriet earned a master's degree from Vassar at the age of 35. After 1884, Henry began to spend more time at Tenafly. In 1885, just before his 80th birthday, he published a short autobiography called Random Recollections. In it, he said that he had married the daughter of the famous Judge Cady, but he did not provide her name. In the third edition of his book, he mentioned his wife by name a single time. He died in 1887 while she was in England visiting their daughter. The 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, removing much of the original reason for the split in the women's suffrage movement. As early as 1875, Anthony began urging the NWSA to focus more tightly on women's suffrage instead of a variety of women's issues which brought it closer to the AWSA's approach. The rivalry between the two organizations remained bitter. However, as the, S However, as the AWSA began to decline in strength during the 1880s. In the late 1880s, Alice Stone Blackwell, daughter of AWSA leader Lucy Stone, began working to heal the breach among the older generation of leaders. Anthony, Wearily cooperated with this effort, but Stanton did not. Disappointed that both organizations wanted to focus almost exclusively on suffrage, she wrote to a friend that Lucy and Susan alike see suffrage only. They do not see women's religious and social bondage. Neither do the young women in either association, hence they may as well combine. In 1890, the two organizations merged as the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NAWSA. At Anthony's assistance, Stanton accepted its presidency despite her unease at the direction of the new organization. In her speech at the founding convention, she urged it to work on a broad range of women's issues and called for it to include all races, creeds, and classes, including Mormon, Indian and black women. The day after she was elected president, Stanton sailed to her daughter's home in England, where she stayed for 18 months, leaving Anthony effectively in charge. When Stanton declined re-election to the presidency at the 1892 convention, Anthony was elected to that post. In 1892, Stanton delivered the speech that became known as the Solitude, the Solitude of Self three different times in as many days, twice to the Congressional Committees, and once as a final address to the NAWSA. She considered it her best speech, and many others agreed. Lucy Stone printed it in, in its entirety in the Women's Journal, in the space where her own speech normally would have appeared. In pursuit of her lifelong quest to overturn the belief that women were lesser beings than men, and therefore not suited for independence, Stanton said in this speech 
that women must develop themselves, acquiring an education, a nourishing an inner strength, a belief in themselves. Self-sovereignty was the essential element in a woman's life, not her role as daughter, wife, or mother. Stanton said no matter how much women prefer to lean, to be protected and supported, nor how much men desire to have them do so, they must make the voyage of life alone. Stanton said that she had been terrified as a child by a minister's talk of damnation, but after overcoming those fears with the help of her father and brother-in-law, had rejected that type of religion entirely. As an adult, her religious views continued to evolve. While living in Boston in the 1840s, she was attracted to the preaching of Theodore Parker, who, like her cousin, Jarrett Smith, was a member of the Secret Six, a group of men who financed John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. In an effort to spark an armed slave rebellion, Parker was a transcendentalist and a prominent Unitarian minister who taught that the Bible need not be taken literally, that God need not be envisioned as a male, and that individual men and women had the ability to determine religious truth for themselves. In the Declaration of Sentiments written for the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, Stanton listed a series of grievances against males who, among other things, excluded women from the ministry and other leading roles in religion. In one of those grievances, Stanton said that man has usurped the prerogative of Jehovah himself, claiming it as his right to assign for her a sphere of action when that belongs to her conscience and her God. This was the only grievance that was not a matter of fact such as exclusion of women from colleges, from the right to vote, etc., but one of belief, one that challenged a fundamental basis of authority and autonomy. The years after the Civil War saw a significant increase in the variety of women's social reform organizations and the number of activists in them. Stanton was uneasy about the belief held by many of these activists that government should enforce Christian ethics through such actions as teaching the Bible in public schools and strengthening Sunday closing laws. In a speech at the 1890 Unity Convention that established the NAWSA, Stanton said, I hope this convention will declare that the Women's Suffrage Association is opposed to all union of church and state and pledges itself to maintain the secular nature of our government. Do all you can, no matter what, to get people to think on your reform and then if the reform is good, it will come about in due season. In 1895, Stanton published the Women's Bible, a prerogative examination of the Bible that questions its status as a word of God and attacked the way it was being used to relegate women to an inferior status. Stanton wrote most of it with the assistance of several other women, including Matilda, Jocelyn Gage, who had assisted with the history of women's suffrage. In it, Stanton method methodically worked her way through the Bible, quoting selected passages and commenting on them, often sarcastically. A, best, a bestseller with seven printings in six months, it was translated into several languages. The second volume was published in 1898. The book created a storm of controversy that affected the, the entire women's rights movement. Stanton could not have been surprised, having earlier told an acquaintance, well, if we do, well, if we who do see the absurdities of the old superstitions never unveil them to others, how is the world to make any progress in the theologies? I am in the sunset of life, and I feel it to be my special mission to tell people what they are not prepared to hear. The process of critically examining the text of the Bible known as historical criticism, was already an established practice in scholarly circles. What Stanton did that was new was to scrutinize the Bible from a woman's point of view, basing her findings on the proposition that much of its text reflected not the word of God, but prejudice against women during a less civilized age. 
In her book, Stanton explicitly denied much of what was central to, to traditional Christianity, saying, I do not believe that any man ever saw or talked with God. I do not believe that God inspired the Mosaic Code or told historians what they say he did about women, for all the religions on the face of the earth degrade her, and so long as women accept the position that they assign her, her emancipation is impossible. In the book's closing words, Stanton expressed the hope for reconstructing a more rational religion for the 19th century and thus escape all the perplexities of the Jewish mythology as of no more importance than those of the Greek, Persian, and Egyptian. At the 1896 NAWSA convention, Rachel Foster Avery, a rising young leader, harshly attacked the Women's Bible, calling it a volume with the pretentious title without either scholarship or literary merit. Avery introduced a resolution to distance the organization from Stanton's book. Despite Underneath's strong objection that such a move was unnecessary and hurtful, the resolution passed by a vote of 53 to 41. Stanton told Anthony that she should resign from her leadership post in protest, but Anthony refused. Stanton after, afterwards grew increasingly alienated from the suffrage movement. The incident led many of the younger suffrage leaders to hold Stanton in low regard for the rest of her life. When Stanton returned from her final trip to Europe in 1891, she moved in with two of her unmarried children who shared a home in New York City. She increased her advocacy of, of educated suffrage, something she had long promoted. In 1894, she debated William Lloyd Garrison's Jr. on this issue in the pages of Women's Journal. Her daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, who was then active in the women's suffrage movement in Britain and would later be a leading figure in the United States movement, was disturbed by the views that Stanton expressed during this debate. She published a critique of her mother's views, saying there were many people who had not enjoyed the opportunity to acquire an education and yet were intelligent and accomplished citizens who deserved the right to vote. In a letter to the 1902 NAWSA convention, Stanton continued her campaign, calling for a constitutional amendment requiring an educational qualification and saying that everyone who votes should read and write the English, la should read and write the English language intelligently. I am opposed to the domination of one sex over the other. It cultivates arrogance in the one and destroys the self-respect in the other. I am opposed to the admission of another man, either foreign or native, to, to the polling booth until women, the greatest factor in civilization, is first enfranchised. An aristocracy of men, composed of all types, shades and degrees of intelligence and ignorance, is not the most desirable substratum for government the subject intelligent, highly educated, virtuous, honourable women to the, to the behest of such an aristocracy. <laughs> aristocracy is, is the height of cruelty and injustice. In her later years, Stanton became interested in efforts to create cooperative communities and workplaces. She was also attracted to various forms of political radicalism, applauding the populist movement and identifying herself with socialism especially Fabianism, a gradualist form of democratic socialism. In 1898, Stanton published her memoirs, 80 Years and More, in which she presented the image of herself by which she wished to be remembered. In it, she, she memorized political and personal conflicts and omitted any discussion of the split in the women's movement. Largely dealing with political topics, the memoir barely mentions her mother, husband, or children. Despite some degree of friction between Stanton and Anthony in their later years, on the dedication page, Stanton said, I dedicate this volume to Susan B. Anthony, my steadfast friend for half a century. Stanton continued to write articles prolifically for a variety of publications right up until she died. Stanton died in New York City on October the 26, 1902, 
18 years before women achieved the right to vote in the United States via the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, the medical report said the cause of death was heart failure. According to her daughter Harriet, she had developed breathing problems that had begun to interfere with her work. The day before she died, Stanton told her doctor, a woman, to give her something to speed her death if the, if the problem could not be cured. Stanton had signed a document two years earlier directing that her brain was to be donated to Cornell University for scientific study after her death, but her wishes in that regard were not carried out. She was interred beside her husband in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York City. After Stanton's death, Susan B. Anthony wrote to a friend, Oh, this awful hush. It seems impossible that voices stilled, which I have loved to hear for 50 years. Always I have felt I must have Mrs. Stanton's opinion of things before I knew where I stood myself. I am all at sea. Even after her death, foes of women's suffrage continued to use Stanton's more unorthodox statements to promote opposition to ratification of the 19th Amendment, which became law in 1920. Younger women in the suffrage movement responded by belittling Stanton and glorifying Anthony. In 1923, Alice Paul, leader of the National Women's Party, introduced the proposed Equal Rights Amendment in Seneca Falls on the 75th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention. The planned ceremony and printed program made no mention of Stanton, the primary force behind the convention. One of the speakers was Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, who insisted on paying tribute to her mother's role. Aside from a collection of her letters published by her children, no significant book about Stanton was written until a full-length biography was published in 1940 with the assistance of her daughter. Stanton began to regain recognition for her role in the women's rights movement with the rise of the new feminist movement in the 1960s and the establishment of academic women's history programs. Stanton is commemora commemorated along with Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony in the 1921 sculpture Portrait Monument by Adelaide Johnson in the United States Capitol, placed for years in the crypt of the Capitol building. It was moved in 1997 to a more prominent location in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. In 1965, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton House in Seneca Falls was declared a National Historic Landmark. It is now part of the Women's Rights National Historical Park. In 1969, the group New York Radical Feminists was founded. It was organized into small cells or brigades named after notable feminists of the past. Anne Cote and Shulamith Firestone led the Stanton Anthony Brigade. In 1973, Stanton was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. In 1975, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton House in Tenafly, New Jersey was declared a National Historic Landmark. In 1982, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony Papers Project began work as an academic undertaking to collect and document all available materials written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. The sixth volume, The Selected Papers of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, was published from the 14,000 documents collected by the project, the project has since ended. U.S. postage stamp commemorating the Seneca Falls Convention titled 100 Years of Progress of Women, 1848 to 1948, from left to right, Stanton, Carrie Chapman Catt, Lucretia Mott. In 1999, Ken Burns and Paul Barnes produced the documentary, Not For Ourselves Alone, the story of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, which won a Peabody Award. In 1999, a sculpture by Ted Orb was unveiled to commemorate the, the introduction of Stanton to Susan B. Anthony by Amelia Bloomer on May the 12th, 1851. This sculpture is called When Anthony Met Stanton, consists of the three women 
depicted as life-size bronze statues. It overlooks Van Cleef Lake in Seneca Falls, New York, where the introduction occurred. The Elizabeth Cady Stanton Pregnant and Parenting Student Services Act was introduced into Congress in 2005 to fund services for students who were pregnant or already were parents. It did not become law. In 2008, 37 Park Row, the site of the office of Stanton and Anthony's newspaper, The Revolution, was included in the map of Manhattan historical sites related to women's history that was created by the office of the Manhattan Borough President. Stanton is commemorated together with Amelia Bloomer, Sojourner Truth, and Harriet Ross Tubman in the calendar of saints of the Episcopal Church on, on July the 20th of each year. The U.S. Treasury Department announced in 2016 that an image of Stanton would appear on the back of a newly designed $10 bill along with Lucretia Mott, Sojourner Truth, Su Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul and the 1930 Women's Suffrage Procession. New $5, new $5, $10 and $20 bills were planned to be introduced in 2020 in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of, our, of American women winning the right to vote but were delayed. In 2020, the Women's Rights Pioneer Monument was unveiled in Central Park in New York City on the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote, created by Meredith Bergman. This sculpture depicts Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Sojourner Truth engaged in animated discussion. This comes to the conclusion of the show. The next show will be on the continuation of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, barbarab at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Olenian Tabert's pre-recorded radio show, which airs by Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesdays by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil rights is our right. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Imagine your new bathroom. A sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bath Fitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bath Fitter, 35 years of better bath remodels.